Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> well, good morning, everyone. Um, we're going to be picking up in the book of Numbers. Uh, we're a good bit into the, the book now, um, in chapters 9 through 12. And uh, obviously, that's a, that's a lot of text to cover. Um, so this sermon series really involves just a lot of like storytelling and summarizing and at least trying to point to maybe some valuable lessons that can be learned from sections. Uh, so um, we're not going to be going over chapters 9.15 through uh, chapter 12 in, in detail this morning, um, but we will be trying to generally look at some of the main lessons that I think we, we can pull out of um, this section. In 1 Corinthians 10, uh, there's a series of warnings that Paul gives there when he mentions that the Israelites, when they were in the wilderness, that God disciplined them in a variety of ways for a variety of reasons. And those things all happened to them as examples for us so that we would learn not to crave evil things. And he lists a series of things to, to not do. Um, but specifically relevant to um, this section, Paul mentions that we are not to grumble as they did in the wilderness and they were destroyed by the destroyer. And that's really what we're going to see through this section here. So in chapter 10, verse 33, it's going to mention that they only had really gone three days' journey before things begin to um, collapse catastrophically. Uh, if it's not for God's intervention, we'll see here, really they weren't going to make it very far. But remember everything that God had been investing in the nation, right? They'd been at Sinai now for over a year. Uh, not over a year, it'd been about a year. Um, they'd been at Sinai for about a year. God had been very carefully investing in the nation, teaching the nation. Remember that the leaders of the nation in the previous section came day by day to offer offerings to support the tabernacle and the priests and the Levites. And God had been trying to teach them before departing how invested they needed to be individually in holiness and prioritizing holiness and learning the value of these things with God and gaining an identity with God while in the wilderness. Um, so God had been trying to train the nation now for some time and preparing them very abundantly for the journey that they're about to set on. So this is a helpful image, I think. Remember that God had really organized this camp um, by tribe to really serve as their, like, not only their king, but their military leader because they're on a journey to conquer. And so they're going to Canaan to fight a series of battles to gain the land that Abraham was promised, um, similarly to our uh, study this morning. So I do want to summarize, starting in chapter 9, verse 15, all the way through chapter 10, really just as an introduction, I'm going to summarize this section before they depart. In the beginning of chapter 9, they celebrate their first Passover since leaving Egypt. And I think all of the events leading up to their departure, which happens in chapter 10, verse 11, are meant to bring them back to the mentality they had in Egypt and to maximize faith as they leave Egypt. So in chapter 9, 15 through 23, look particularly at verse 18. One thing that's emphasized here is the cloud and the pillar of fire were over the tabernacle and would lead them. Again, God leading them as a military commander. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out. 
And at the command of the Lord, they would, they would camp. As long as the clouds settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Look at verse 23. And this is said over and over again in this section, at the command of the Lord, at the command of the Lord, at the command of the Lord. Verse 23. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. And they kept the Lord's charge, according to the command of the Lord, through Moses. And so again, the people are following God as their king, but also as like their military leader, right? So God is guiding them very directly. And in chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, there's something new that happens. They make two silver trumpets for the priests to blow. And I think if you combine, you know, the pillar of fire, the cloud of smoke with now these trumpets, do you remember Mount Sinai when there was the sound of like trumpets when they got there? I think the idea is it's like the principles of Sinai and the God of Mount Sinai was now going with them and in front of them. And there were principles that God was giving them to demonstrate to them that the God of the mountain was now going with them and was among them for their victory. So these, these trumpets would be blown when they would set out, when they would gather together, when there were sacrifices being made. Really, they would just be constantly blown as a reminder that God was the center of their camp and was active among them. Then verse 11, now in the second year, in the second month, in the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from the tabernacle of the testimony. This is the first time since they arrived at Sinai, this is the first time that they actually move. The instructions and organization of chapter 2, that they were to leave tribe by tribe in a certain order, that order is followed. There's this great momentum where Moses' father-in-law or brother-in-law uh, Moses compels him to come with them. This becomes the Rechabites that actually remain among the Israelites even until their captivity by Babylon. And Moses in verse 38 and 36, you know, has like this poem, you know, rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it came to rest, the Ark of the Covenant, he said, return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. So again, just this great excitement, this great anticipation, and really, in the book of Numbers, everything has been going good up to this point. And as long as they're at Sinai and God has been giving them more mechanical instructions, they've been obeying them. But in chapter 11, as soon as their hearts are tested, and as soon as their faith in God is tested, they fail. And that's really what we see with Israel throughout Numbers, is when, when there's mechanical obedience, congregational obedience mechanically, they do fine. But when we need the obedience of the heart and the trust of faith, catastrophe. And so it doesn't undermine the value of their mechanical obedience, right? But what it means is they weren't carrying the principles and the values of that obedience forward. And so we'll talk about that more. So let's reread verses 1 through 15, um, the portion of scripture from the scripture reading. And again, we'll do some summarizing as we go through all of this. But we're going to see the wildfire of complaining, both literally and also like in a sense figuratively, because the spread of the disease of their complaining, it goes much farther than just the initial like literal fire that burns people on the outskirts in the beginning. So uh, verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. 
So the name of that place was called Tabera because of the fire, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The rabble who were among them, I think that would be like the Egyptians who would come with them, a mixed multitude, had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance appearance like that of bedellium. The people would go, out, would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar, and boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. Exodus 16, by the way, also says it tasted like honey. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent. So now imagine millions of people now, like everybody now is just complaining about the situation. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, why have you been so hard on your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of this people, of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you are going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. Well, what started as greedy desire, where did that very quickly lead? Three days journey. And within three days, if God does not intervene, it's a total breakdown. Not only has Moses given up and say like, look, just kill me right now. All the people have given up. I mean, they're at a total standstill unless God acts and intervenes somehow, right? And so the seed of what started, I think, back in verse 1, which doesn't say it's a greedy desire, but they became like those who complain of adversity. You know, imagine life is different for them now. You know, I don't doubt that they were suffering maybe many inconveniences. And in Deuteronomy, God would even reflect and say, hey, I purposely <laughs> inconvenienced them. I deliberately withheld food from them to make them hungry so that they would learn that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, right? But in their adversity... Were they without care? And in their adversity, were they without access to comfort, right? And so again, you see how this just amplifies and ripples through the nation so quickly. I think illustrated with this wildfire that starts in the camp. And then in verse 4, then you've got the rabble who had greedy desires. And I think the text indicates something there that there was an influence being spread and also the sons of Israel wept again. So I want to just think about some principles here for the sake of trying to maybe summarize through the chapter and, and be able to navigate through the chapter within a, uh, a time frame here and think about three principles from this chapter and then three principles from chapter 12 that we can learn about complaining. And in each chapter, what we see is the chapter begins with a problem. The people are complaining. And we see in both chapters 
that God has a solution, right? So we'll see the principles from the complaint and from the way that God responds. So I know this seems really like simple, but I think this is really important because in these chapters, with the wilderness, one of the advantages we have, like 1 Corinthians 10, these things are meant to be an example that we see God directly responding to problems. So we have no doubt how God feels about these things. I want you to notice verse 1, how did God feel about the initial complaints of adversity here? It says, when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. Um, look at verse 10, when all the people are weeping, it says the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Look further now in verse 33, when God does give them meat, and we'll talk about the overabundance of meat they got, um, there's no change of heart, and it says, while well, the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. Look further in chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron complain about Moses. And when God responds in verse 9, the anger of the Lord burned against them. I want you to think about parents with their children and why do parents become angry with their children. And I want you to think, like, not just selfishly angry where I'm trying to do something and my kids are just intruding on my time. I don't mean just annoyed because kids are being kids. I mean when parents are properly angry with their children. You know, usually it's when the children are doing something that is either a great danger to themselves and they're just totally unaware of it, or they're posing a great danger to others and are being ignorant of that as well. And I think that's what you see here is the people are doing something that is causing the complete collapse of everything that God has been doing and his entire purpose, the momentum of that purpose is on the line. And God is right there with them. The trumpets are sounding. The priests are blowing those very continuously. They can see the fire, the pillar of cloud. They literally just celebrated another Passover meal. And God brought them a few days from Egypt to Sinai so clearly they can get from one place to another. And what they're doing again, how is it affecting the nation? How is it affecting Moses, right? So does God have the right to be angered by something that is spreading like fire and destroying his nation and his relationship, his ability to even have a relationship with people who belong to him, right? So the first principle is complaining makes God angry, but not just unduly. That God has a reason to be angry when hearing complaints. Um, secondly, I think we need to understand what complaining is maybe on a deeper level. Because I think anyone who complains, we can justify our complaints, right? So you think Israel could be like, we're complaining about adversity because things are hard. We're complaining about food because we don't have any. So it's like, you could easily get an argument of someone like, no, I have good reason to complain, but I think we need to understand complaining is connected to greed and idolatry. So if you look at verse 4, what influenced the Israelites, I think, in the text is the greedy desires of the rabble. And I would argue that it may very well be that complaining always comes from learning it by influence. And that the Israelites were learning to have this attitude because of the influence of the greedy desires of the rabble. Um, if you look at verse 34 as well, 
when God strikes people who weren't changed by him providing in abundance. So that's the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatabah. So this is the, the second stop, by the way. So the first stop, they named it like place of burning because God burned people to death. And the second place they call Kibroth Hatabah, which means the graves of greediness because there they buried the people who had been greedy. So complaining is always connected with greed. But then there's idolatry that's involved as well. If you look at verse uh, 20, when God is saying, like, I'm not just going to give you quail to satisfy you now. It's like going to be coming out of your nostrils and it's going to be loathsome to you. He says, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. All right, well, if you, like, go back in the text and you look at, like, where did they outright reject the Lord? When did that happen? Again, it, there's a subtlety to it, right? He says, because, because you have wept before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? So they're complaining. God sees the real problem at hand here, that there's something bigger going on, right? That there is a rejection of the Lord involved in, in their complaining. And I want you to think about, again, like the forgetfulness that's involved in this. So the third lesson we get is complaining with this is blinding and we'll talk a little bit more about how disheartening it is. Um, my brother used to, in college, um, he was really good at math. And so he tutored people um, for math classes, like if they needed help with their math. And um, I was thinking about asking him about some of his experience, actually because of this lesson, it came to my mind. Um, and my brother has experiences that he's told me about and told me about again where sometimes he would tutor people where, like, their parents would be like, here's my son, please tutor him in math, he's failing his classes. And then, like, the student themselves didn't initiate it. And he said sometimes, like, those students in the tutoring session itself, they would do fine. But they would leave the tutoring session, take their test, and they would still get an F. Even though my brother was spending time with them individually, giving them these extra advantages. And I mean, they were paying for it, right? And yet they would still fail. Why? Because they weren't remembering, because they weren't investing. I mentioned this last week, that these congregational problems, why, why are these things happening? It's not a problem just with the congregation. It's that things are not individually being applied that God has been saying they need to apply within the nation because obedience helps us remember the Lord. Our obedience to God's instructions when it's by faith, it opens up our mind to remember what God has done for us, what he's provided for us. And has God not been investing in the nation? And I think it's like the Pharisees when Jesus would be deep into his ministry and they would say, hey, show us a sign. And it's like, have you forgotten all the signs that even just recently have been done, not, not to mention the plethora of things that have been happening in the nation, not even just with Jesus, but with John the Baptist. And so although you could see the nation is like, yeah, okay, maybe God hasn't been doing enough. They've spent a year at Sinai. They had blood in buckets being splattered on everybody while they said, we will do everything that God says. And they've had so many scenes of God's glory before them, so many things that God has already done to correct them and discipline them. Mind you, something I haven't mentioned 
in Exodus 16, all of this already happened. They left Egypt, they complained about food, and God gave them manna and quail. Now they're leaving Sinai. It's like reliving the same thing all over again. They're complaining about food, and God's going to give them quail. And so, again, they've forgotten the very thing that God has already solved in the past as if it had never happened before. So, how did this affect Moses? Verses 10 through 15. Was he motivated to continue leading the people at this point? You know, when I worked at UPS, especially Birmingham, um, my employees oftentimes would complain a lot. And you've heard me say over and over again is like sermon illustrations that I wanted to quit that job like thousands of times. And a lot of that was because of just the attitude, right? Not only my employees, my coworkers, my boss, literally complaining was sport in that job. And that was extraordinarily disheartening. And so again, like, how does their complaining not only affect the nation, but how is it affecting Moses, a faithful and good and zealous person of God? He's given up. That's, that's really just the effect that complaining has. And I want you to not just think about this on others, but personally. That when I start to complain, it probably is going to begin to discourage me and dishearten me. And then other people who are around me, it's going to discourage and dishearten them. That's just the natural effect that it has. But I want you to think about this as well in verse 10 through 15. Is there a difference between Moses and the people? Because Moses says some things that are really extreme, right? Like he says, God, just kill me right now. If this is how it's going to be, how could you have laid this burden on me? This is unreasonable. I would argue that God has great compassion on Moses because God never rebukes Moses and he only helps him with his complaint. And by the way, the people, were they talking to God? Moses talked directly to God about it. And God can take it. God can take it. God can take Moses' complaint. God understands Moses' complaint. And so, complaining and honesty, somewhere there's a distinction where Moses is able to be extremely, brutally, shockingly honest with God And I don't think it's the kind of complaining that the other Israelites were doing. And I think God's response bears that out. So again, there's a way to be honest about adversity and the hardships of life. And I think what helps with that honesty is when we bring it to God first. If we pray more honestly with God scripturally, I think that's a resource that equips us to work through difficulties with a lot more wisdom and endurance And again, just more honesty. So again, Moses, what he says is shocking, but there is, I think, an important distinction in how God responds. So 16 through 35, we always see in the book of Numbers, God has solutions. When God gets involved, what you have is you have a solution. Moses talks to God, God has solutions. Um, Let's read... 16 through 23, and then we'll summarize some things to the end of the chapter. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting. Let them take their stand with you. So just real quick, what God is telling Moses isn't just all appoint 70 more men, but he's telling Moses, you select these men yourself. So people you trust, people that you would trust, these are the 70. 
Verse 17, Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, and will put him upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. Say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for we were well off in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, not two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? The Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. And again with the blindness, the blindness of greed and complaining. Verse 18, the people, God hears that the people are really saying, We were well off in Egypt. Were they really well off in Egypt? Was that really the situation that they had been in? You know, this attitude again that goes into the kind of complaining that God is rebuking and dealing with in terms of discipline, it's like a selective blinded memory. You know, and they could have looked forward instead of backward, but instead they look back to Egypt and say, things were actually much better in Egypt for us when they were hard pressed and God delivered them because of the request of their petition to get out of bondage. So God's solution is 70 more elders. We see that borne out in 24 through 30 with some parallels, I think, to the day of Pentecost. Uh, Moses, you know, even when um, Joshua goes to Moses, when two men don't come out, but they still prophesy in the camp, you know, Joshua's like, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. And I love what Moses says in verse 29. I think this is very humble of Moses. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And by the way, I think that's very deliberately connected to Joel chapter 2, things that happen in Acts chapter 2. Um, so 70 more leaders are appointed. And then in verse 31, there's a wind from the Lord, and it brings quail stacked two cubits high, a day's journey on every side. And I want you to imagine like kids who are in an absolute like sugar frenzy, So it says the people in verse 32 spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered the least gathered 10 homers. So 10 homers is over 2,000 liters worth, which is like insane to think about just how much that is. Because like you think about like a two liter drink is like fairly large. Think about over 2,000 liters so what, what I'm thinking is maybe that means there were not everybody went out and it was like select people who went gathering all of this. Suffice it, this was, a, this was an insane amount of quail that God brought either way. And they just had the complete freedom to satisfy their greedy desire as much as they wanted. And I love when you go back now to verse 23 because Moses was like, how could there possibly ever be enough meat for all these people in this wilderness literally the idea is is the lord are the lord's arms shortened it's like i know it's kind of like funny but it's like god is saying do i have alligator arms like can i really not reach down 
and fill this need of these people? Are my arms too short that I can't deal with this? And so it's not that God can't. It's that God's decisions have been deliberate. God has been withholding meat from them, not because the wilderness makes it impossible, but because there is a reason that's consistent with his character and his higher purpose. And I think this is helpful when you think about like miraculous things and whatever, like, okay, I know God can do this, so why does he do this for me? Like, why isn't God doing this? And it's like, well, the things that God can do, maybe we should give him the benefit of a doubt that maybe there's a better reason why he doesn't do the things that we think we should get or that we think he, we should have from him just because he can do it, right? And we see throughout the Bible that when God gives people what they want, when he hadn't necessarily intended to give it to them in righteousness, it always results in punishment. It's never for the benefit of the people, right? So how does this work out? Well, the people who had the greedy desires, I don't know if it's like they choked while they were trying to eat it and just like fell down dead or if they got like extremely sick very rapidly. But the idea is I think many people who ate the food just dropped dead. Why did that happen? Again, I think I referenced this just a little bit. They ate the food, but do you get the impression in verse 33 that they were thankful, that they had been humbled by the course of events, that their hearts had been impacted and that they were amazed at what God had done for them? No change, no gratitude, no humility. Without that, does this make anything better or does it only make it worse? And I think, again, without God's intervention, the situation with the quail only is going to make the situation actually much worse. Can you imagine the people going into Canaan, this land of abundance, with greedy desire, and they get in the land and with, like again, a sugar craze, just want the physical abundance? Was that really what God's redemption was all about? Is just giving the people everything they want? Well, let's go to chapter 12. And as we get to chapter 12, we see a complaint against Moses and his leadership. Chapter 12, we'll read verses 1 through 3. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because, the Cush, because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble more than any man who was on the face of the earth. So I know like it's kind of weird, verse 3, because like Moses wrote these books, right? Um, but I think it's a necessary insertion because Moses is not going to defend himself, right? Because humility is not interested in, you don't respect me and you need to respect me, right? And I think what that leads to is God is going to defend Moses and God is going to vindicate Moses because of Moses' humility. Moses was not going to defend himself here. And the issue is very strange, right? So the Cushite thing, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 7, references Medium as the land of Cush. So maybe this was Zipporah that they were upset about. Maybe Zipporah had died and he had married another woman. I don't know. But suffice it to say, like, they have a problem with Moses' wife. And it's interesting in verse 2, that's not what they honestly say. Um, but they have a complaint against Moses now. And again, Moses is not going to respond. And so I think there's a, a principle here. And again, I want to clarify again. 
When we're talking about complaining, remember what Moses said. We're not, we're not saying in Scripture that we can't be brutally honest about life's challenges, that we can't be deeply grieved and pour out our hearts about it. But again, there is a clear and important difference between that brutal honesty and that expression of the heart and complaining. And I think what we see here with the insertion of verse 3, complaining is the enemy of godly humility. What we see in the second principle, complaining undermines godly leadership. So this church, we don't have elders. Do you know what's going to be one of the most important things that lead us to having qualified men who can serve as godly leaders? Is if each of us individually get a handle on complaining. There's just something so important about the principle of attitude involved in that, where the purity of heart, the ability to invest in God's people, to have endurance through tribulation and joy, and to help others to gain endurance and have joy, that in principle is fundamentally important with godly leadership. And with how discouraging this was to Moses, what if we have godly men who are appointed into a position of leadership, but everybody else has no handle on complaining? What will that do to the godly men who are trying really hard to invest in the Christians here and lead? Do you think that might dishearten them, challenge and discourage them? And so in 4 through 16, we see that God, again, has a solution, and it's a hard one. Um, So look at verse 4, and we'll we'll read through the end of the chapter. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, and imagine how terrifying this is, right? So God has heard this, and I imagine suddenly is like they've, they've just got done saying this, and just boom, suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, you three, come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. Again, okay, imagine how terrifying this is. I imagine in some way you could see that God has come down to personally address this problem. And he called Aaron and Moses, Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, he said, so imagine Aaron and Miriam had now stepped forward. Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall, I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. No argument. No talking back about this one. And verse 10, But when the cloud had withdrawn over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us, in which we have acted foolishly, and in which we have sinned. O do not let her be like one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes forth from his mother's womb. Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, O God, heal her, I pray. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterward she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. 
Afterward, however, the people moved out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Well, there you go. That's the first three stops after leaving Sinai. First stop, place of burning. Second spot, graves of greediness. Third spot, place where Miriam was made a leper for seven days. The camping trips are not going very well, right? Um, so again, how terrifying this is that God called out Miriam and Aaron, Miriam and Aaron um, to the tabernacle themselves. And I think a third principle with how God responds. When God deals with complaining directly, again, these are things that like Aaron and Mir- Miriam were making a case that to them sounded justifiable. Like, I mean, what's so special about Moses? God talks to him, he talks to us. I mean, who does Moses think he is, right? But when God responds directly to complaining, what happens? Punishment, shame, and humiliation. And by the way, was this handled privately? Imagine how embarrassing this would be, that not only is Miriam having to live as a leper for seven days, the congregation is not going to move until she comes back into the camp. Everybody knows what just happened here, right? But is God dealing reasonably with this? You know, Moses prays, God, heal her. And I think, again, we know what God can do. And I think oftentimes that blinds us to really, what do we need and what's best? Was it really best for just magic? You know, as soon as she's a leper, you know, magic spell and she's back to normal. No, God says, that's not even how it works man to man. And I think what God is implying for a, a father to spit in his daughter's face is like if a daughter has, some, has done something just insanely disrespectful, like incredibly dishonorable to her parents and they spit in her face because she has just done something horrible, she'd be unclean seven days. He says, what you've done against me, at the very least, Miriam should be ashamed of herself for talking against my servant, Moses, in such a way. Does humility make someone's heart more tender or more calloused? Even though Moses wasn't going to defend himself, do you think this would affect Moses? Do you think it would hurt him for his brother and his sister to raise this issue with his leadership? I would argue again that humility doesn't make you more callous to these complaints. It makes it so you're more vulnerable to the pain and the heartache that comes from them. And God being very well aware of what had just happened in the last chapter where Moses says, God, kill me right now. Do you think God can sympathize with that? How overwhelmed Moses was and how much of a burden it was to carry these people? I think God, more than anyone, understood Moses is the victim of an extraordinarily taxing situation. And here Miriam and Aaron are making the situation even worse on someone who's already being stretched so thin. And so what's just? What's fair? Miriam stays outside of the camp. When God responds directly to complaining, people don't come out on top. Nobody comes out arguing their case. It's the penalty of punishment, shame, and open humiliation. So let's end the lesson thinking about some reflections. So let's go to Philippians chapter 3. Um, really, these are hard lessons for all of us. I think the Israelites, 
are like a mirror reflection of ourselves. If I asked just kind of openly, hey, could you raise your hand if you struggle with complaining? I think all of our hands would go up so quickly that it would be like, anyone not raising their hand is probably not being honest and is probably too embarrassed to do it. But I think there's just something fundamental that us coming out of the world, the reality is, this is something that we struggle with. And so it's important just to honestly confront it and to not be like, well, I struggle with that, so I don't really want to be convicted. It's important to understand how God feels about these things, that we're equipped to overcome these things and not see them in the wrong way. Let's read Philippians 3, 12 through 18. So then, my beloved, as just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So he says in verse 15, we will always be living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And the reality is we live in a discontent, complaining culture. And I don't just mean in the world, I mean, oftentimes if I get on Facebook, even in the culture of brethren, you just see like countless things back to back of complaining about every possible thing happening in our culture that's wrong. And so I've had to just, I don't know, wrestle with this and just be honest with my attitude about rising gas prices, um, things happening politically, right? And just not allowing myself to justify the complaint because the reality is there's adversity. The reality is things are broken. Things aren't the way they should be. But we still have to deal with the reality of how things are without complaining. And we just need to learn the discipline of being able to understand when to be honest about life's challenges and to have the wisdom to navigate that honesty without complaining, right? Um, And so this does require, I think, a disciplined and deliberate effort. And I think as simple as it is, we just need to stop complaining. And we just need to be really serious-minded about that. Because it's something that displeases God and wears on him and wears others around us and wears them out. And so we just need to be determined about this and be aware that in Numbers we learn that this is a critical problem that gets in the way of God's purpose. And we need to learn the discipline of seeing God's blessings that are in every situation. No matter how hard it is, is God's goodness, does it disappear when things are hard for us? Are there not blessings even in trials? You know, sometimes I'll remember Ephesians 1 verse 3, And it's so convicting and humiliating when it said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it's like, God, open my eyes to see those things and appreciate those things and just get so blind to the greater, bigger picture of all that God has done and just see things the wrong way. And in verse 16, 
I think there's a connection between the attitude of complaining and our capacity to even appreciate the value of God's word. And I think this is borne out a little more in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. When the people were consumed with complaining, what was their attitude toward manna? It's not enough. Not tasty enough. You know God calls Egypt the iron furnace that he brought Israel out of? Can you imagine if someone threw some like leeks and cucumbers in a burning iron furnace and you thought, my, 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 sure would like to go in there and get those, right? And they looked at Egypt and thought, oh, cucumbers, leeks, variety. A hardened heart cannot appreciate the value of God's food. Cannot value what is gained in viewing the value of what comes through that food nutritionally. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and all envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. What does it take to really value God's word? What does it take to get out of God's word what it's meant for? Verse 1, A heart that is filled with malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander? Can a heart that is filled with those things really long for the pure milk of the word or gain the value of growing salvation out of it? You know, I don't think it's an accident that before grumbling and disputing in Philippians, it says, work out your salvation. Let God finish this work and bring it to completion without hindrance and getting in the way and putting unnecessary obstacles in the way, right? And so that's where we'll end the lesson. For those who love the Lord, the desire to be with him and be as close as possible is enough to be convicting. And so for us to finish the work of our salvation, we need to learn to get a hold of complaining. If you're here this morning and there's anything that we can do for you, whether that be encouraging you to overcome the obstacle of complaining or whether it be other needs that exist in your faith, now is an appropriate time where we stand and sing.